Hi, before we get started, I just want to let you know about a couple upcoming conferences and tours. First, we have the Young in the Heartland 2022 virtual conference with Donald Kalshed and Tom Singer, hosted by the Young Society of St. Louis, and that's on September 30th and October 1st, uh, 2022. Uh, more information is available on the homepage of our website or go to uh, the Young St. Louis website, youngstlouis.org. Also, we have Young in India 2023, a Jungian encounter with the, with the nature and wilderness spirit of India with Ashok Beatty, MD and Jungian analyst from February 3rd to 15th, 2023. And there are 12 CEs available for that. Also, Jung in Ireland 2023, um, from March 20th through April 3rd, presented by the New York Center for Jungian Studies. Um, and we're mentioning that because one of our uh, analyst members, uh, Mary Doherty, will be presenting uh, during the second week of that tour. Uh, more information can be found by clicking the link on our website or at nyyoungcenter.org or just Google search Jung in Ireland and you'll find it. Thanks. Welcome to the Young Anthology Podcast from the C.G. Young Institute of Chicago. For the third episode of Marion Woodman Month, What Soul Tells the Body? Woodman's Discovery. In this episode, Patricia Martin interviews Tina Stromstead, PhD, who was a student of Marion Woodman's somatic therapy work. Over the years of studying and collaborating with Marion, the two became friends and colleagues. In this interview, Tina opens up about what it was like to work with Marion Woodman, offering rare insight into the practices Woodman developed to help people achieve wholeness, body, and soul. Tina Stromstead is a Jungian analyst, board-certified dance movement therapist, somatic psychotherapist, educator, and author. Past co-founder and faculty of the Authentic Movement Institute in Berkeley, California, she currently teaches at the C.G. Jung Institute of San Francisco, Jung Platform, and as a core faculty member for the Marion Woodman Foundation. Beginning her work with Marion Woodman in the 1980s, she co-taught the leadership training program and Wellsprings of Feminine Renewal Intensives and served on the board and curriculum committees. There's much more information in her full bio in the show notes, so if you want to learn more about her, um, just look there. And now uh, let's get to the interview. Welcome to Jung in the World, a podcast of the Jungian Anthology channel of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. I'm Patricia Martin, and I'll be your host today as we talk with Tina Stromstead. As part of our Marion Woodman series, we invited Tina Stromstead onto the podcast today because she has a wealth of experience in working with Marion Woodman. She was a, a student, a colleague, a friend, and so she can talk about Marion's style and her wisdom in ways that are completely unique. We also want to let you know a little bit more about Tina because her own personal history and her professional experience is deep in Jung's work and in somatics, which is the embodiment of the soul. She founded the Authentic Movement Institute in Berkeley, California, and teaches at the C.G. Jung Institute of San Francisco and Pacifica Graduate Institute, as well as the Marion Woodman Foundation. Beginning her work with Marion Woodman back in the 1980s, she co-taught the leadership training program and wellsprings of feminine renewal intensives. She is in private practice in San Francisco, and she hosts workshops around the world to teach these somatic 
therapy methods to other practitioners and people who need the healing from it. We're so happy to have you on today, Tina. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I, I want to name um, a few people before we start um, that my co-founder of the Authentic Movement Institute was a beloved friend, Neela Hayes, a dance therapist, um, and that I co-taught uh, Wellsprings of Feminine Renewal for many, many years with analyst Meg Wilbur and artist and scholar Dorothy Anderson. So I want to name them. And I'm going to be naming some other people as we go along because it really takes a village and it's a very vibrant community. And one of the things Marion taught me so well um, was that none of us are alone. We might feel that we are, but we aren't. And so to have other women and some wonderful men like Ross, her husband, and others, the partners of many of the women in the work, standing at our backs with warm hands behind the heart makes a huge difference and allows us to step into the world and, and offer what we can in this work. So I, I want to honor these people as well. Well, thank you. And, you know, it gives me an opportunity to kind of talk about the passionate personal style of, of Marianne Woodman, which was very collective, very collaborative, um, very loving and very intimate. Yes. And that might be a place where we can begin. So you tell us about how you met Marion and what your first impressions of her were. Well, actually, the, the first thing I want to say, and then I'm going to go to that is when we made this date, I wasn't aware of this particular day in August. And last night I had a dream about Marion. And I was reminded that today is her birthday. <laughs> August 15th. So she would be 94 today. Wow. Um, yeah. So I just want to mention that and, and honor her. It's, a, it's an auspicious day. She was a real Leo. So that can help us in. She had, gosh, when did I first meet her? Well, I met her like so many other people by reading her books, everything I got my hands on. So I started with The Owl as a Baker's Daughter in 1981. And then I just kept reading and then Barbara McClintock, who was in charge of public programs here at the Young Institute in San Francisco, where, where I work and teach and, so, and was trained and so forth, she invited Marion to come and give a program. And it was one of Marion's first of emerging from the church basements in London, Ontario, where she was working with Mary Hamilton and putting a lot of this work together later to be joined by Ann Skinner, but I'll come back to them because they are a huge part of this work. Um, anyway, so she was out in the public and you might know this story because it became well known. She's in the car with Barbara McClintock driving to the Unitarian Church here on Franklin Street. And there's a long line of people like curving around the church, down the street. And Mary, they're talking and Marion says, um, who's in town? And Barbara goes, Woodman. And Marion was like, oh my God. So this was her first brush with what she said. You know, I didn't know people would really read my books. I, I, I had to write them, but I had no idea that the collective would pick it up in the way that it did because they were soul medicine. And so I was there at the Unitarian Church when she first came here and in the, in the 1980s. And, um, she she told me a little bit more about it later, but she actually told the audience, she's sitting in the front row in the pew. The, the podium is up there. Her father, as a minister, was a pastor, was always at the pulpit. And so now she's going to go up there and do it. It's her turn in her feminine body. And she nearly fainted. Oh. So she's, she's about to fall over in the, in the front row in the pew. And so she picks herself up and she goes out into the parking lot and she prays to Sophia, you know, please come through me. Please allow me to do my best, you know, in humility with Thanksgiving. And she grounds herself and she comes back in. <laughs> and this is pure Mary. She gets behind the lectern and she tells us that she's just been in the parking lot and what she was doing. And everyone by then is in laughter. And she has us. We're all in love with her by then. Because she's just like any one of us. 
She's shy. She's afraid. She's she's completely authentic and and passionate. And then she drops in and we're right with her. The place was packed. And the next day we had a workshop down by the, the water here <clears throat> in which she worked with the body. She lectured. She always brought these together. And then she said, okay, that's enough talking. Now <laughs> let's see what's really going on here. Wow. <laughs> she would lead us in movement experiences um, in twos and threes that went very deep because she was holding the container in a very conscious way with a lot of presence. And you could feel that in the room. It's such a necessary part of healing and growth and life and this work. Um, uh, just for our listening audience, can you just explain the power of the container, what that concept is? Yes. So the container, we often think of it, oh, I'm just trying to see if I have something here. This is from Italy. You know, like a vessel. Mm -hmm. The body is a sacred vessel. And the spirit is inside. Mm -hmm. And so Marion and Jung would call this marriage of matter and spirit, body and psyche, the soul. And for the soul to come trembling through the body, the body has to thaw and not be frozen anymore, not be too afraid, not be too compulsive, not be too rigid, not be too flaccid, all the things we do with our personality. So for that process to feel safe enough to happen, you need a witness to be present in her, I'll say her, because mostly it's us as women, but also wonderful men who are connected to their own inner feminine. You need an embodied soul, a person there who is being present, who has a soft and deep focus on what's happening in the room, mm -hmm. um, on um, tracking what's happening in her own body so she stays present, um, holding the space with intention, and I would say love, cherishing those dear bodies that are that are holding the soul that is trying to be born that has been so forbidden in many ways or so castigated or so um, so the container when a, when a person is um, in that role or in that function they're holding with an open heart, being as present as they can without judgment, criticism, interpretation, all the things that we tend to do, noticing when those come up and saying, mm, I better take that back to my analysis because, or my supervision, or because I don't want to project that into the, this soul body here in front of me. Um, so I think <clears throat> that this business of Marion being able to not only help people understand how their bodies were containers for the yes. soul, but also she was able to psychically create the sense of a container within the workshop. Yes. So that people could then feel the safety to do the depth work that she was going to lead them through. And this had to be completely intriguing to you as a young dance therapist and somebody who had worked with her body for years and years, you, you had, your antenna had to go up. My antenna were vibrating and, <laughs> and my body was so happy at that workshop. I actually came up to her afterwards and I said, I, I just wanted to meet you. And I just, I think probably touched my heart and said, thank you so much for your work. <clears throat> And then the shy part of me started to walk away. And she said, wait, who are you? Like that. She would just do that. She wanted to know you. And um, I think she had seen me in movement on the floor. I don't know how. There were so many people there. Um, she said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a dance movement therapist um, and a, a lover of Jung. And she said, so you're already doing this work, aren't you? And I said, yes. And she said, maybe we'll meet in some workshops, meaning 
kind of would I come because she was beginning to bring the work out. Um, and of course I did. And that, that later led to her leading with Mary Hamilton and Ann Skinner, body soul intensives. So we would take out 10 days and for travel and they would go on for a week. I, I wanna tell you more about that. Um, but that then later evolved into leadership training, but I can, I can come back to that. Back to the container for a moment. You can see that I, as an intuitive feeling type, I circumambulate a little bit instead yeah, of- Yeah, no, we're following. Great, okay, good. And Marion did that a lot. And she would say, I'll get to the point, I will. But it's a kind of deepening, centering. So other examples of containers are, let's say we're in a group together. Our individual bodies, this would be a workshop or a training in body soul rhythms. Each of our individual bodies is a container. You know, like I was saying, the, the, the chalice, the, the body. Um, and then Marion, Marion Anne were the next level of container, standing around or sitting around the edge of the room, holding space with intention, with consciousness, care, um, really witnessing what was going on and feeling into the energy in the room, which began to really change as we dropped, dropped, dropped into the descent process. There was an intentional arc from arriving, warming up, beginning to open up the body, and then beginning to drop in. And I can say more about those ingredients. But so there's the second container, the faculty. Ah. The third container was, I would say, the intellectual, psychological, spiritual map of the soul that Jung gave us. Mm -hmm. And so Marion would teach Jung through, you know, his collected works, through, uh, through the Nietzsche seminars, in which Nietzsche brought a lot of body and spirit together. Um, through group dream work, which a lot of people weren't doing in those days. And the number of analysts were saying, what? Dreams in a group? And we know that that can happen. And it, it not only in individual analytic work, but also in the group. Um, so I'll come back to that. The fourth and largest and maybe most important container was Sophia. Sophia, in my understanding of it, and in working with Marion, knowing her these 40 years or so, um, is the feminine face of God, um, or one of them, if we go to the Hindu faith. Or, but she's, she's embodied wisdom. She's um, The Black Madonna is an aspect of her. The, um, the rich wisdom of the body in a sacred marriage with spirit so it's not the ascendant spirit that if we're, I'm sorry, but if we're good enough while we're here, we get to go to heaven. I know that's a belief system that many have, and I think that's fine. Um, for me, I might have another set of lifetimes, and I may have had some before this, but it's about living more fully, living an incarnated life while we're here. And so... Sophia is the great mother, the goddess, the goddess in ourselves, the goddess incarnated in every living thing on the planet, the flowers, um, our animal cousins, every living being. So it's not a disembodied God. It's not the feminine Eve who was sort of a sinner mm -hmm. who had to cover up the body and um, repress her sensuality and repress her voice. It's, it's um, bringing the feminine to an equal standpoint with the masculine in a sacred way. So Marion, as a pastor's daughter, would lead, would open every day with a prayer at the altar. And we would invite Sophia in at the beginning of the intensives and then she would thank her for being with us all week and release her from the altar to keep going elsewhere and doing her work. Um, and the prayer of each morning, now mind you, not everyone there was religious. I would say everyone was spiritual. We were seeking the life of soul. 
Um, in those prayers, she would ask for a deepening for everyone there, for healing for the people in our lives who were sick or who needed care, for people that we didn't know and might ever, never know, and for the politics in the world situation. It was never only individual, it was also collective. So that largesse from the very, very intimate to how our dreams and group dreams were offering something to the collective, to the larger world, as everyone's dreams do. Yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to just insert one thing. Please. You said to me that you had a dream after you got with Marion in it, after you got invited. Every single person I have interviewed for this series had the same thing happen. So I'm pretty convinced that Marion is along for the ride here and um, is delighted that, that, you know, not in an egotistical way that she made her mark, but more that some of these lessons may have life for a next generation because the cultural repression of the feminine has cost the culture dearly. And yeah. that was part of her message as well, I think. And we're, we're lodging some of that in our bodies. And so when you began to work with, you know, dropping deeply into the body, what were some of the feelings? Like, how did that feel? Thank you for that. And it's so moving to hear that we've all been having these dreams. I have no doubt that she's she's here and she's alive in each of us. And I think the spirit that that she embodied, that she worked so hard to claim her own voice, her own standpoint, you know, has left a, an incredible legacy for all of us. Um, so I'm I'm very honored to participate in this and in the and in the larger project, let's say. For me, um, I think all children are dancers. I think when we come out, we're natural movers. Mm -hmm. Until we hear, you know, that we should sit still or, or we make someone uncomfortable or we go to school and we have to sit straight up, you know, in first grade or, or whatever. Unless we have a really good teacher who knows that we mostly learn through play. Um, in any case, so being in the body has always been a huge part of my life. I went from being a dancer who trained in ballet because my parents said, stop fidgeting. So they put me in <laughs> ballet classes at, at four. Um, and I learned about perfection because there's so much discipline in ballet. Very beautiful, very skyward, not particularly connected to the earth. And you dance, even if your ankle is sore, and even if you, so you don't necessarily pay a lot of attention to your body. It's very interesting. Um, I've worked with a lot of people from the San Francisco Ballet here, and they don't come for analysis unless they've broken something, twisted an ankle or something, and then outpours depression, anorexia, sexual abuse, you know, what have you. So being in the body has always been really important to me. And um, when I was teaching dance, I would look not for perfection, not for everyone having to do exactly the same movement in the same way. But how, if you have 12 or 20 doing a movement, everyone will do it their own way. Or you just see something. So I'd say, hey, and they go, oh, did I not do it right? Because we're so ready for criticism. My body isn't right. My movement isn't right. You know, am I following uh, the rules, et cetera? And I, and I would say, wait, wait, wait. Can you go back? What was that moment? And that would be the place where the technique fell away and something unique to that person would begin to come through. And for me, that was soul. It was like something, it's like Leonard Cohen saying, um, forget your perfect offering. 
there's a crack in everything. That's where the light comes through. And it was in the mistakes, the accidents, that something genuine would come through, which would be soulful. So I got very interested in that and went back to study psychology, worked with people in psychiatric hospitals, and then later met Marion. So dropping in was familiar to me, but I was so used to, as the oldest child, being the teacher, the leader of the group, Marion was a crone, and I could just drop in and descend and do my own work. Oh, wow. And it had to be very moving for everyone in those early workshops because very much she was creating this workshop upon workshop. This was iterative for her from everything I've read. But I want to go back to this idea of the trauma that spilled out with some of your analyses who were dancers, you know, they'd get injured and that would put a crack yes. in the vessel yeah. and, and things would start pouring out. And it seems to me that Marion had a very spe specific idea about trauma and how to heal trauma that was mm -hmm. unique to her. Yes. Yes. Tell us about that. Well, first of all, she had trauma and she was very honest about it. One of the things that I found really unusual about Marion is that she was willing to tell her own story. Most analysts don't. Um, as therapists, we're, we're, we're invited and encouraged to contain our own material. And there's a lot of good reason for that because the analysis and the client is the focus. It's their sacred hour. But the idea that you're an invisible blank piece of paper there is not true. There are two bodies resonating in the room. They're making music together. They're going deeper together. And so the embodiment of the analyst is really important. So Marion knew that she had to do her own work because she nearly died of anorexia. She wanted to soar to spirit as a pastor's daughter. And she told me in the interviews we did together that as a pastor's daughter, she really had to be a good girl. And she couldn't use swear words. She couldn't cuss. She had to be very careful about the way she behaved herself, even though she had a loving father. This was true of her brothers as well. So Marion was out of her body. And she said that. So her trauma was partly culturally based. She had to be really thin like Twiggy, which means you have no body, um, which means you can't be in touch with your feelings because you're numb or you're frozen. These are some of the things we do to get through trauma. And also she didn't feel good about having a female body. Her mother was a really solid, good businesswoman who wasn't early feminist who was kind of split off from her body. Mm -hmm. And I think she passed that attitude toward the feminine to, to Marion a bit as she couldn't help it. It's multi-generational because mm -hmm. the feminine has been repressed for millennia mm -hmm. for a very long time. And Marion's mother also got tuberculosis from drinking the milk from the village uh, when she was having her next child. And so she was bedridden and Marion didn't have a lot of contact with her. She didn't even know if she'd stay alive, her mom. So wow. she became a father's daughter, as I did too, and as many of us probably did, because our mothers were so injured in many ways. Um, so in terms of trauma, Marion came together with Mary Hamilton, who was trained at the Royal Canadian Ballet School. Beautiful dancer who opened us up with movement when we first arrived and helped us lubricate our joints and drop more into the body. And she was playful and soulful and had really beautiful music. Um, and then, and I, there's a lot more I could say about that. And I could totally relate to that as a dance therapist. <laughs> oh, I'm home. <laughs> and, then Ann, and then Ann Skinner led us in breath work and voice and mask making. Anne um, was head of voice at the Stratford Shakespeare Festival, the company there, and people still consult her as a crone. She's brilliant. 
So then we would find our voices because trauma cuts you off somewhere in your body. Um, Wilhelm Reich, one of the pioneers of somatic psychotherapy, talked about body armor, all the places where muscles cross in the body or where we can hold and constrict. And that's how we repress our feelings. We get brilliant at it and we need to, to survive. Or we dissociate and we begin to live in our heads. A lot of fathers, daughters do that. And we're encouraged to um, excel and study and be out in the world. And all that's great rather than repressing it. But we can leave our feelings, our tenderness, our saltiness, our sensuality, our body wisdom behind. And Marion said, no more. We can't do that. So her trauma work involved the arts, movement, voice work, mask work, all the ways that soul and body can speak, not just verbal psychotherapy. This is interesting to me for a lot of reasons, and I know it'll be interesting to other people who are listening, because I think there is, for, for everyone who had an experience with Marianne Woodman, they talked about her charisma. Yeah. And part of that, as far as I can tell, is that she was unselfconscious. Mm. She wasn't trying to be perfect in front of anyone anymore. She, um, she was disciplined. Yeah. She knew exactly what came next in the workshop. <laughs> But there was this inner strength she had that allowed her to fumble or stumble or is, do I have this right? Is, is, there, is there an opinion you have about what made Marion Woodman so charismatic? Oh, it's a, it's a great question, Patricia. I, she was a very, in my experience, a very complex person. Um, in a beautiful way, many layers, many sides to her. She was very disciplined. As you said, she got up at four o'clock every morning to prepare the lecture for the workshop, you know, which would start at nine. Um, she was a teacher of Shakespeare for 24 years and literature. She brought all of that in. Um, she, she brought Ross into every intensive to bring in the sacred masculine where he lectured about the romantic poets, Blake, Shelley, all of them. Um, she was outrageously funny. <laughs> um, so just when you thought you were kind of getting serious and going to a deep place, she, she would say something totally outrageous and you would laugh, you would be startled and you would laugh and laughter is deep body work. And so then it was like a reset. It was like, I was thinking one way, but now I'm open to wherever we're going. So she helped us surrender our ideas, our willpower. She had been very willful. In fact, she had a dream that her analyst, Dr. Bennett, you may have read about this, was in the analysis, was pulling a rotten tooth out of her mouth and the tooth came out and so did her whole rigid backbone. <laughs> well, Mrs. Woodman, you know, now we're doing the work. Yes. So instead of being this way, um, she could also be very shy. Um, uh, she dealt with a big inner critic and she worked with it so honestly. She called it first the negative mother who is that inner part that we absorb from the culture and that can't help but come through the cells of our mothers, even if they don't want it, and our fathers and in community. The negative mother says, uh, you're failing miserably. You know, how dare you? You know, it says these kinds of things. It's very judgmental, very inhibiting. Um, and she distinguished that from what she called the death mother. Um, my colleague, Daniela Seif, interviewed her about that and has done some beautiful work in that area. The death mother is, is the one who says, why were you even born? Mm. Die. Why don't you? 
So it's it's horrible stuff. It's even hard to say it. I want to kind of do a cleansing here. But the negative mother criticizes criticizes you for the way you do things. The death mother criticizes you for being. They're very different and related. And so we got to identify those, those interjects that were in our own bodies that were talking to us without our even knowing it. Um, so we got to talk back. Um, and we also made, we got much more in touch with the shadow in the body, forbidden emotions, um, things we weren't supposed to say growing up, um, the, the rage, the, the terror, the grief. These are the things of trauma that get frozen in the fight, flight, freeze, or affiliate, which is another possibility, reach out for help um, system. This is, this is trauma. And so Marion, because of her own work, was not afraid to go there. So we learned to trust her. Uh, she could be everything from um, gracious and elegant, mm-hmm. full of poise. And then the next moment we'd be doing a movement exercise or we'd have a mask party with all of our masks that we were building all week long based on our shadow energies, each of us making one. And she would come, she came out at one point with these giant balloons in her bra. You know, <laughs> we were all getting a little too serious. And we were like, what? You know, it was just, and we were in hysterics, you know? So she just, it was no holds barred, whatever the work needed. Oh my gosh, what a great story. It's made me wonder though, uh, you know, this idea of, what has been repressed into the body, you know, the, the, when we are traumatized, how the fight or flight energy can get trapped in the body. And it makes me want to ask you about the unholy Trinity. Oh, thank you. That's such an important image concept and, and um, depth of experience that we're all working with that I think is at the core of this work, actually. So Jung talked about the, the Holy Trinity, you know, the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost in the, in the Christian creation story and in that religious um, lexicon. And he said, but there's an unholy Trinity. Here we go. It's upside down. And so there's the holy and the unholy. And he said that that was the part that got repressed underground. And that was the feminine, the body, and the shadow. And he said, what's been repressed for millennia cannot help but begin to rumble and rise once again. And I think that's what's happening now with the sacred feminine in our culture. And that Marion was riding one of the early waves of this, bringing the sacred feminine, the conscious feminine, and the sacred masculine over time so that we could come together um, in a much more equal, embodied, curious, respectful, loving way that goes way beyond social roles, way beyond what we know so far. So the unholy trinity is is um, something that we're redeeming now uh, that's been repressed really all over the world in many ways, although some parts of the world celebrate it, you know, a bit more than others. Marion had to go to India to find more of the sacred feminine, the goddess. And she came back with Sophia. She went, connected more to the masculine God and came back with Sophia. So in your own work, when you lead these workshops, yes. What, after all these years of working with Marianne on this material, helping people surface concepts and and archetypes that are you know deep into their unconscious lives and and surfacing that into their consciousness it makes me want to ask you what has this taught you about life it it reminds me to surrender more to slow down to live life more fully how how precious life is um, how 
important relationships are, um, how love is really at, at the center. You know, when I was in graduate school, you couldn't even find love in the in the index in the back of our textbooks. It, it just wasn't there. It was logos. So it was all about ideas. It was all verbal. Um, you know, we were trained to write down what we said and then what he said or what she said, but not really the dance that was going on between us in the room. Um, Marion, uh, and I want to mention another beautiful colleague, Joan Chartero, who's another leader in bringing the body forward in the Jungian world, a Jungian analyst. Marion, Joan, and some other analysts, and then myself, started bringing active imagination and movement in the body into the international analytical community in the congresses that we have. In fact, we're about to teach in a, in a week or so in Buenos Aires, um, because the analysts themselves were very verbally oriented. And at first, um, people were sort of afraid to have the body there. I'm sure people did it privately with yoga or different things. Um, but to do it together in Jungian community and to drop and to drop our personas, our social roles, and just be there together, working with the body. After a while, we actually had a long waiting list of people who wanted to come in because it started to build community and people would high five in the halls during the Congress because they had been partners. They'd connected oh, nice. of an authentic way. So continuing to bring the body into the Jungian community and into all of the work that I do and to honor my dreams. That's how I start each morning. I always did that as a child and I kept dream journals, worked with dreams through dance in the body, um, wrote my master's thesis on that in the eighties. That's always been important, but continuing to do that and to trust my own voice that we become crones and we don't hold back. It's discerning. We don't, you don't just blabber. Um, but there's what Marion called the silver sword, the discerning masculine that begins to come through in women as we age and work on ourselves. It's not just having an opinion and thinking that's strong. That's reactive. It's earning our standpoint earning our voice, earning, trauma cuts off the voice. Women are often taught to speak a little more like this, you know, and um, be polite and appeasing. And, um, and no, not that we're not going to be thoughtful and polite, but, um, but when you integrate, when you develop more of the masculine, you find more of your own voice. And the intensives would lead toward the I am the final exercise in which we made statements, I am myself, I am loving, I am rooted in the deep mother earth, and I am bringing the gifts of this into the world. You know, I am dreaming, I am a dancer, I am vulnerable, I am strong. I am. So we we found that place inside through all of the work that went on all week and through integrating the shadow. We would gradually take off the shadow mask with the trembling body that was integrating the opposites, the persona and the shadow, and include that in more of our wholeness. Um, well, that's uh, uh, reminds me of a quote that I came across yeah it was written by Marianne and I just want to I want to hear your thoughts on this Marianne said as consciousness develops the body will act as a donkey for only so long men as much as women need to know that their soul is grounded in their own loving matter subquote this is who I am every cell in my body tells me this is of value to me not to my persona but to me. Yes. So I take from that, that when we are tuning into our bodies, it is part of learning who we are. 
it's part of knowing ourselves and it's part of what leads us then into this process of what Jung would call individuation, where the unconscious meets the conscious and we are therefore transformed. Yes. And as you said, cellularly. Yes. It's not just an idea or knowing about our personal history or having insights. Those are important. And that provides something of a map that allows the ego to say, okay, maybe it's okay to surrender and to descend into the dark, fertile ground of the body. It's cellular because that's where the memories are held in the body. That's where the deep emotions are. This is our, um, this is where all, this is the the house of emotion, the the home you want to come back to. Yeah. So I wonder as you continue this work that is inspired so much by Marion's, you've put your mark on it. You've made it your own. You're headed to Buenos Aires. You're uh, also giving workshops in, in Italy. And as you do this work, what's, a, what's next for you in your becoming, Tina? Thank you for that question. Um, Well, I'm working on a book, so I'm very excited about that. And it will really be about bringing the body through more and more in analytic work, but also in daily life, the sacred feminine and the sacred masculine. Um, And, you know, continuing my commitment to my deep analytic work with people who are on their soul's journeys. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I love the work and I I feel honored to be able to do it. Um, continuing to spread the work through teaching in different parts of the world, as you mentioned. So um, the cross-cultural element is very important to me. My father's from Norway. I have, you know, family in Switzerland. where I'll also be teaching and and having a chance to visit them. Um, Every culture has has its own way of moving, its own way of relating to dreaming, its own perspective on the body and on the masculine and feminine its own iteration and artistic renderings of the soul and of the sacred. So I learned, so I want to be a student for the rest of my life, learning from other cultures and from colleagues and students and clients and friends, beloveds, you know, in different parts of the world. Marion always said, she was way ahead of her time. She said, we are one world. And with the internet, social media, all of that, we, I think, have a responsibility to be global citizens now, not just to live in the silo of making America great again or any of this. It's how do we all impact the world ecologically, um, relationally, interculturally, you know, on, on every level, spiritually. How do we, how do we come together? Because we have to. You know, Jung said the the future of the planet hangs by a single thread, and that is human consciousness. And so that's our responsibility, and I feel like that's what we're doing in all of this work. So as you can tell, there's a social activist side to me, which (laughs) is also very important. So I think if we each just do our part, our own homeopathic drop, you know, in our depth work, in our teaching, um, in our own being genuine, in in each conversation, in trying to speak with people who are, quote, on the other side, across the aisle, in deep listening, and trying to resonate with each other so that we don't turn into efficient machines. You know, the world is lost if we keep doing that. That thread might snap. Yes. Thank you so much, Tina, for helping all of us today tend the slender thread that keeps the project of the human race moving forward. It's been wonderful. And I'm sure that all of the people listening to this will drop in a comment and let us know your books, your workshops, we'll make sure that we include that as well 
And I want to thank you so much for spending the time with us today. It was profound. Thank you very much, Patricia. I've really enjoyed it. And it's wonderful to be in this with you. And I wondered if I could end with a poem, which is something I often do, and, and Marion pretty much always did. Would that be all right? Perfect. Okay. It's called, um, it's by Hafiz, mystical poet. It's called The God Who Only Knows Four Words. Now, any, the two of us and anyone who's listening, please work with the word God. So it could be Sophia, Buddha, um, the Shekinah, um, Kali, any of those sacred figures, what's true for each of you. And so here's Hafiz. Every child has known God, not the God of names, not the God of don'ts, not the God who ever does anything weird, but the God who knows only four words and keeps repeating them, saying, come, dance with me, come, Dance. Thank you, Tina. We've been talking with Tina Stromstead, PhD, dance therapist, Jungian analyst, thought leader, and beautiful soul. Thank you very much, Patricia. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about training programs, archives, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, jungchicago.org. Thank you to our 2021 donors who gave at the contributing member level or above. The Arlene M. Feiner Trust, Barbara Anan, Arlo and Rena Kampan, Judith Cooper, Kevin Davis, George J. Didier, Mary Doherty, Carl and Patricia Greer, Ryan Mayer, Patricia Martin, Boris Matthews, Sue Rosenthal, Diane Sherwood, Debbie Stutzman, Lawrence Chad Tingley, Alexander Wayne and Lynn Kopp, Gerald Weiner, and Ellen Young. You can also become a supporter of this podcast by visiting our website, newchicago.org. Thanks.